It is January 2024. How wild. Happy New Year, everyone. Today's guest is Beth Huggins. This conversation was actually recorded a year and a half ago in June 2022 on the coast of Ecuador. Beth and I were there because we were both working for Regeneration Field Institute. Now, even though this conversation is about 18 months old, it's still very relevant to me and for Beth. One of my favorite things about this conversation is how much then and more recently, as I re-listened to this conversation, how much Beth and I share when it comes to ethics and values when approaching this type of work and acknowledging the complexity of rural development international work and also the sometimes indescribable joy when things really do work and it does feel that progress is being made and it takes time. That aspect of really reaching out to community members and slowly, steadily developing personal connections, cultivating that change from that human level is something that I have always and will continue to cherish. And I think this type of approach is not unique to this type of work, but can certainly be applied and be benefited to almost anything we face and experience in day-to-day life. And so, yeah, I I really hope you approach this conversation with uh, an open mind and perhaps be challenged by some of the, the points and philosophies that we share in this conversation. I'm happy to add that last year in July 2023, Beth married her then partner, Anjesh, in Oklahoma, where she's from. And I was able to be present and participate in the joyous coming together of the two of them, along with many friends and family. I was also able to lean into my craft and desire to help document the beautiful long weekend together. It was my first time in Oklahoma and to see all the families and settings and hear a lot of the stories of her upbringing added so much to my friendship with Beth. I also enjoy hearing the ambient sounds and bird calls in the background as we sit perched on a hill overlooking the land. It transports me back to that season when I got to work for an organization and be in that setting and almost feeling the tropical heat of coastal Ecuador. And as Beth talks about Nepal, it then transports me to the lower Himalayas. And that's the sort of magic that I think I wouldn't have realized starting this podcast project That's what would happen, but that's the power of stories, and that's what we've been able to invoke and capture, and for me, forever immortalized in the past through stills and more recent years, videos, and now to be able to capture the audio bites is such, such a satisfying, fulfilling aspects of this work. With all that said, I bring you my dear friend, Beth Huggins. When you feel that pain or joy, that those are valid human experiences. And that's what makes life really beautiful. It's not that life is always going to look in some way or it's not going to be this idealist future we all think of, like where we're sharing and caring and everybody works together. Mm -hmm. It's that there is moments of difficulty, moments of happiness and moments of sadness and that you can't really isolate either side. We're 
live here at Regeneration Field Institute, RFI for short, here in Costo, Ecuador. We're sitting underneath a bamboo shade structure mm -hmm. and we're on a, perched on a hill overlooking the main house where we're currently hosting ourselves, hosting a group of students, volunteers from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. That's right. Thanks yeah. for having me. It's an honor. It's a joy to be here with you and to have these kinds of conversations and be able to be surrounded by gorgeous, breathtaking nature as we do it and as we've done for many years. Yeah, coming up to seven now. Yes. I love to start by the very phenomenon that we're here together in Costa Ecuador with RFI, how the chain of events come to be that I'm here and you're here. Would you yeah. like to recreate that story yeah, for us? Yeah, I can definitely <laughs> recreate that story. So prior to Ecuador, we've both spent a lot of time in Nepal. Mm -hmm. And I think the two themes that have connected this work in Ecuador and the work we've done with Conscious Impact in Nepal is that on a deep level, we believe in organizations and communities that work towards environmental sustainability or regeneration and also that really talk about how to make, you know, resilient, flourishing people and how to support that to happen. And I know that that's why I'm here. And another thing that kind of links these two <laughs> across the globe experiences is having students or participants or volunteers internationally or nationally participate in the work of both organizations. We've done that for seven years in Nepal. Regeneration Field Institute also does that. And so I think that is at a core, a fundamental core of a value that I have in terms of global educational opportunities existing for young people to convince young people that they actually can have a place in making the world better, not that they have to be experts or have PhDs or they need to come from some specific background, but that actually anybody can do a lot of things and that the things that we can do to make our world better places are actually really accessible to us. There's just not a lot of support that says that, that says like, oh, if you have good intentions and you have, you know, good values that you can actually support other people. And so, yeah, both of these experiences in Nepal and Ecuador kind of have that connecting theme throughout them. And it's been a theme throughout my life that's been really important. And I think a theme throughout yours that has led us kind of on this similar track of finding these opportunities or experiences to, to guide or follow is that as a student, as an engineering student, I was really dissatisfied with what the kind of world was telling me were the skills it needed from me. It was like, mm. oh, you're an engineer. Go and work for oil and gas industry or go and work for pharmaceutical drug industry and, you know, make money and take care of your family and that that was the most important thing you could do. But that really, I didn't feel that that was a truth for me, that what I felt was that, okay, I have all these skills that can do amazing things in technology, but why aren't we using that same technology to solve some of the greater issues around the globe, whether it's climate change or whether it's food security, waste and sanitation. As a student, I felt really kind of disillusioned by how much little time was spent talking about those things and much time was spent talking about luxuries 
that only certain countries have access to,、mm-hmm. like the mechanics of how to pump oil out of the ground.、Yeah. And so early on, I was looking for experiences that could show me something else, something that felt more aligned with what I was interested in. Remind me the area of engineering that you were focused in in school. Yeah, I was focused in chemical engineering, which explains the oil and gas or pharmaceutical、really? drug. But I. Region、yeah. that you grew up in, that, From, that is a big industry. It is,、there. yeah. Oklahoma is has a lot of oil and gas. Oklahoma produces a lot of, yeah, both industries and in terms of pharmaceutical drugs. And but I was actually, you know, interested in medicine, and so I thought, oh, I'll do pharmaceutical drug research to support medical realities around the globe. And then I realized that. Drug treatment is like the second stage.、Mm-hmm. It's like what you do when you haven't solved the problems at the root. And so, like, oh, you need intestinal drug, intestinal parasite drug medication because, well, there's a deeper issue at hand. And so, quite early on in my studies, I felt, wait a second, I want to like talk about the root of what people's suffering comes from, not、yeah. like put fix it later. And this is this is around a time when you also did. EMT training. Yes, yeah. And, I worked、uh, in a free clinic. I did、uh, EMT training. I was really active in the medical treatment world, and really, that's what I was going to spend my life doing.、Mm. And I went on a volunteer trip abroad, and it just flipped up everything in my world. Was that the volunteer trip that you sent you to Ghana? It was the volunteer trip first to Honduras. Honduras with Global Brigades. It, okay, the same organization.、Mm-hmm. And so then I later、uh, became a student leader that led trips to Ghana, which is how I met Alan and Ryan,、okay. our mutual friends, who started Conscious Impact, and how we both ended up in、right. Nepal. See, the, I thought that you had gone to Ghana first, Ghana from Oklahoma, but that、mm. there was actually the Honduras part、mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, which is great because I started. My relationship with Global Brigades as an undergraduate was also to Honduras, Honduras. first,、oh, and got me、so、activated to take on, I guess, a leadership role to take、Google. other students to have that sort of immersive experience as、right. we did, and went to Panama instead.、Mm, and, nice. But but of course the the public health aspects、mm-hmm. grabbed you to, to towards Ghana. Right. Meeting our mutual friends Orion and Alan.、Mm-hmm. And it was from there that I my eyes were open to this greater world of like oh, you know it's not it's one thing to say like everybody in the world definitely deserves healthcare for sure, but like it's different just to show up and say like well what do you want versus like oh here's healthcare or here's health resources, and so then I started to kind of make my understanding shift from like oh well actually to support communities, like what you really need to do is just show up. Hands free, you know, like that. Like you don't have some agenda you're trying to push. That like, there, you know. I first thought people wanted healthcare and that everybody needed medical resources, and then I realized like, oh, actually, people also need financial resources. They need like stable financial income, but they also need secure financial institutions so that you can get a microloan if your sewing machine breaks and you're a seamstress. So then I'm like thinking, oh, okay, it's all financial, and then I realize really ultimately it's so dependent on the culture and the community. And the individual, what they need, and that really, all you can really do is try to create systems and community-based organizations that work together, and that really became clear to me. A really holistic approach, instead of this mostly one-track mind where we're here for a medical mission, we're here to build a, a water system,、mm-hmm. but sitting down with the people that you may be serving and asking. 
creating mm-hmm. discussions and roundtable meetings mm-hmm. as to what it is that they want or need, and even maybe sometimes below that, what's the root cause of why they would want and need certain things? Because sometimes it, it may be that they want a loan, but what is it that they really need loan for? Oh, because they start business because they lack a a service or good in their right. region. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So this is quite a good segue, I feel, into the evolution of that path, right? Because mm-hmm. you spent those weeks and months in Ghana with our with our mutual friends, mm-hmm. who started the Ghanaian programs for global brigades in water and public health and medical and dental microfinance, I believe, was one of them too. Yep. Um, and it gave you these realizations as to international development or mm-hmm. um, foreign aid or you know however right. it's branded. Or right. marketed really comes down to getting to know the individual communal needs of a region. Yeah. And so, how did that evolve? How did that take shape in the in the years that followed Ghana? Initially, after Ghana, I started working for a social enterprise in Kenya that was doing like waste and biofuel management, and I saw some real challenges to being an international business and trying to make your way in this in a public sector. And particularly, I saw the company not make great decisions in terms of prioritizing relationships with the local government. Then I saw local nonprofits do kind of a similar thing that they also wouldn't prioritize necessarily the right relationships, not necessarily with the government. The nonprofits usually have really good relationships with governments, but they don't have good relationships with actual communities. Mm. So when it comes to implementing their work, they're kind of limited in terms of doing really amazing work. And so I, you know, took some time off being in Africa and worked for a nonprofit consultancy group because I felt that there was this disconnect. Like, well, why, why can't nonprofits have better relationships? Or like, what, what's the holdup? Like, if you're mm-hmm. really good at connecting with the government and there's like good funding, like, why can't there be better relationships in the communities? And I saw that one of the the biggest challenges is that there's just a big disconnect. The people who fund the work are not locally there. And that was another theme that we had seen in Gober Brigades also, is that when it ultimately comes down to the work on the ground, the local people are doing it. But then when it comes to like fundraising and reporting, that's a whole different group of people. And then just it happened you know, not planned by any means, but the earthquake in Nepal happened and Alan and Orion were there and they decided to start Conscious Impact. And when I wrote to them... It coincided it, with, with your work with this social enterprise mm-hmm. in Kenya. It, with that ending and then working for this nonprofit consultancy and seeing yeah. all of these repetitive problems that right. every nonprofit seemed to struggle with. It's true. And it just felt like, oh, this is really interesting. And so then I said, what are you guys doing in Nepal? Do you need help with fundraising? Because I have a lot of fundraising experience. Do you need help on the ground? And they said, you should just come for three months, like check it out, see how you feel. Like <laughs> Nepal is a beautiful place. And I'm thinking like, okay, I could do that. Like I've never thought about going to Nepal. It wasn't where I thought I would ever spend seven years, definitely. But even any time I hadn't really been attracted to it. I went and uh, I saw like a lot of open opportunity to create and formulate a nonprofit that could kind of like try to attempt to not struggle in the same ways. Of course, there's going to be struggles. Of course, it's not as easy as it sounds to start a nonprofit, but there was just a lot of opportunity and ultimately a lot of support needed to start a nonprofit. And so I felt, okay, this is like my PhD in nonprofit management. I can just like do this and like learn and grow and try to find the right resources in order to 
create something that tackled some of those issues that、right. I had seen previously. You have to have the experience and the time to steer and voice some of these concerns that you've seen in other nonprofits,、mm-hmm. and to start literally from the ground up,、mm-hmm. following a natural disaster and that were the earthquakes. To make it so that the communication with the community is better than you've ever seen it, yeah, because you're there to be the voice and represent.、Mm-hmm. And even if at the time you didn't speak the language, the underlying intention to make that be very clear and pure、yeah. is is present right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, and and ultimately it's about. Kind of like helping a community create spaces to find their voice. I mean, it's ultimately like trying to get out of the way in some、mm. in some sense, so that they can decide. And I mean, it's really tricky to get a community that's multi-ethnic across different landscapes and different hillsides to. And so we've had to redefine like what does that even mean? Like, what community are we really working with? And it's really different in a lot of senses. Or like, you're doing a project in education, the community stakeholders. Stakeholders are really different, maybe than like when you're doing a water project, and you think like, oh, but they're serving the same group of households, which is true. But the people who value different things are going to be attracted to different types of work, and they're going to need different voice. You're going to need different voices in in either of those situations. Right. I think the tricky part has been you didn't go in there with this clear idea, nor you know, it's not a job description where you know Beth Huggins will come in and spend. Two years, three years, building this program. It's like come for three months. Let's see, like where you fit in this complicated puzzle、no. that we've landed ourselves into. We have certain skill sets and intentions to help out these communities that are devastated by the earthquake. But really, it's this really open-ended puzzle that we didn't really know where it was going to go, what challenges we we're going to face.、Mm-hmm. You know, I can say we because it was. We found ourselves landing within the first couple weeks of each other,、right. and it was, I think, disheartening is one way to put it, but also like, like, whoa, this is, this seems like a multi-year, if not decade, set of challenges, and so much of it is even more multi-layered because of the complex history of Nepal, and in the region where there's political uprisings and government overthrowing and. Coups and <laughs>、right. you know different ethnic groups that don't get along with one another. Absolutely. And so you take all that into account, and in a country that is already under-resourced, that is not talked about in the world much, that is like kind of bullied by China to the north and India to the south. My gosh, like we were in for quite a treat, depending on. Who you ask and what perspective you find to be the most true? Yes, like I said, I think I'm a PhD in、uh, a few a few areas at this、yeah. point. Yeah, you're on your you're on your super senior year of your PhD now,、mm-hmm, seventh、mm-hmm. year. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Please. I love that introduction, and I'd love to shift into the community living aspect、mm. that you, myself, and hundreds of others have co-created through the years. The mixture of Eager helping volunteers from all over the world, along with、um, the Nepali local community members, and also Nepalis from other parts of the country,、mm. who've come on as volunteers, as staff members, all like sharing similar and same goals,、yeah. but living and cooking and working and recreating with one another, and、exactly. like what that dynamic has been like in a nutshell. I know it's impossible to really distill some of the essence that we've lived through, but certainly、yeah. I'd love for you to talk into. 
the the highs and lows and maybe things that are often not mentioned in that kind of dynamic. Mm. Yeah, I mean, community living. I think on the first hand for conscious impact is like the organization living within the Nepali community mm-hmm. that it's trying to serve, and that that targets that whole disconnect that we were talking about earlier. That a lot of nonprofits face in terms of making their programs really valuable is like. Where's the community buy-in? Well, how do you build community buy-in? Or, okay, well, you build community buy-in with, like, trust and understanding. But how do you do that if you're just visiting, you know, once every three months or short-term stays or you Mm -hmm. have only outsiders involved in your organization? So I think on one hand, it's that the abundance of living community really comes from, like, that connectivity that you see each other on a regular basis. And that that can look like a lot of different things, you know. And I think we're really fortunate to have it look like it does in Nepal and that can go to the tea shop in the morning and see all of the people who are at the tea shop every morning at 7 a.m. and get the like news of the day you know and (laughs) and I think in a lot of ways different cultures experience that community living very differently that in some places it's Sundays are the community day that you see one another or or Saturdays or there's different structures of what community can look like and I really believe in that I believe that like everywhere around the world exists that inherent need for community and that you can build that kind of community wherever you are you can I mean especially with today's technology you can stay in touch you can connect you can be together some of the time and be apart some of the time but still feel one another's presence but I think that speaking to the experience in Nepal what's really unique is that we've been able to share the physical time together which is really rare in today's world to have working towards the same goal, to be working towards the organization's dreams together. It really bonds people and unites people. And yeah, it's been like a really big joy of my life, at least to experience um, building an organization together and building work with friends, with what started out as just people who were sharing similar goals and what became friends, what became family now. And like, I think that that is something that, yeah, we've been really lucky to experience and something that's really beautiful. And it comes with, yeah, the structure of cooking together, you know, like how many people cook meals together. I think every friend group I know that spends time cooking together has really strong bonds. And why is that? Okay, well, food is really essential to like life you can't live without it and so then like when you're sharing food and you're sharing the act of cooking to provide food with one another there's something really special there Mm -hmm. i think it also comes from working together when you like get to show up every day and at 8 a.m you're like out in the fields planting trees together there's Mm -hmm. something really beautiful about that and how many people get to work with their friends like usually life is very segmented in terms of like you have your colleagues that are your friends for sure but like you also spend all day with them so you're not going to have your social calendar with them also and then you have your other friends and then you have your family and everything Mm -hmm. is kind of separated and Mm -hmm. yeah so I think there was that element of like working together also that really was beautiful it's accomplishing tangible goals goals and tasks yeah and you could measure them you know you could like see at the end of the day or at the end of the week like wow we made this many bricks or we planted this many trees and it really felt that you know we also had the privilege that it was really going to you know, communities that we knew. We knew exactly where those bricks were being delivered. We knew exactly where those trees would be. And because Conscious Impact has decided to stay put for a long time, and that from the beginning we kind of had that goal in mind, that long-term angle, we do get to stay around and see those things happen. 
we do get to like see the fruit trees that plant were planted five years ago produce. I think that all of those things make it to where living community and sharing space have been really beautiful. Yeah, we've gone through weddings together, mm -hmm. a lot of important Nepali festivals together. Mm -hmm. There's even been deaths in the family, mm -hmm. babies being birthed, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there's a lot of farewells and goodbyes mm -hmm. from both the Nepali team as well as the revolving door of foreign helpers. Mm -hmm. We've built a network now spanning across 35 plus countries across the world. Oh. I can't even keep count how many first degree connections you and I would have now, so perhaps nice. several hundred, yeah. maybe more. And Definitely. then when you look at second degree connections of people who know about us through the network that we've built around Nepal and the world, it's staggering. It, it really is. Like Absolutely. each posts on social media and each email that you write out and when you just wrote out recently about us reopening mm -hmm. which i love to touch into soon it reaches the eyes and the minds and the hearts of humans that we love and care that may not physically be in nepal or right around us right now but certainly we're connected by this thread absolutely right? absolutely and it, it is also the being of service. I mean, I think ultimately, like when you get to wake up and work every day and you're working with people that you're cooking dinner with, but you're all being of service to something greater, mm -hmm. like whether it's the earth or whether it's the communities or whether it's one another, like there's something greater there. Totally. It's like a heart thing. It's yeah. Like the seva. It is, it is the seva. It is mm -hmm. the selfless, compassionate work of that I feel really privileged to get to do. Honestly, I think that there is an element of you know, sacrifice for sure. But there's also an element of luck that I can participate in this kind of work. Yeah. And there is, yeah, there's of course choices that I've made and but there's also benefits that I've received because I'm doing this. Support for Wilderness Within comes from listeners like you. That's right. I don't really want to put ads on this podcast. And I don't want to sell you soap or razor subscriptions, discounts on NordVPN, or get you signed up on BetterHelp. Although I do think that counseling can be really important and helpful. That said, for those of you who find value in this show and have a few extra bucks in your pocket, I'd love it if you can consider pitching in on a monthly or annual basis. It's thanks to listeners and supporters like you that allow me to hire an editor and buy gear and travel around and interview my really inspiring friends. So I hope to be able to do that for some time. Go to patreon.com slash subtle dream. That's S-U-P-T-L-E-D-R-E-A-M to find more and help out. Cheers. Besides becoming a patron, one of the best ways to support this podcast is to share this episode or show and rate it on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite listening platform. Whatever you're able to do, thank you. Follow and engage with me and us on Instagram at wildernesswithinpod or hashtag with the same name. Cheers. Back to the show. Let's dig a little bit into, I think, the sacrifice and challenges. Yeah. Because I think it can be, when you and I talk about it, because we're, we're slightly biased as the people who've contributed to its founding and building, but certainly we've had a number of challenges on the individual level. You, know, you talked about sacrifices, you know, you having been away from your biological family, which you're very close to mm -hmm. in Oklahoma, yeah. and a number of friends that you've made through the years. People either have to visit you in Nepal, yeah. or they have this tiny window when, you're, when you are back in Oklahoma, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe in California to visit. 
And so I know that has been hard to say the least for you. Mm. Yeah. And then also on the ground in Nepal with cultural and language barriers and mm. misunderstandings mm. as to perhaps like why we're there, the type of work that we do, decisions that are made. So perhaps name maybe a couple examples in each of these realms to share and whether it's ongoing, whether it's something in the past, maybe something you've gotten enlightened out of it. Mm-hmm. How has that contributed to your growth? Well, I think in the biggest way that I have learned is that when you're of service, you don't really get to be attached to the outcome. I'm not making personal sacrifices, so I get X, Y, and Z done. That isn't really the concept of service. The concept of service in my mind is that you just show up day after day, you have no expectation, you have no agenda, you're just there to support life. And, mm. and that has been hard because like you said, I have made personal sacrifices. So it's really easy to feel like, okay, I'm making these personal sacrifices because I'm planning to get this done, this many houses built or this many bricks, you know, supported or create a self-sufficient, you know, organization. And it's like, well, actually I'm making these personal sacrifices because I choose, I want to see this through, whatever it looks like, whatever's on the other side. It is hard. Sometimes you feel really homesick. I would say during COVID especially, there was like this really catalyst moment for me where the beginning of the pandemic happened. A lot of our international core team was departing and there was an opportunity. It was kind of like, okay, you can leave now or maybe you're stuck here for a long time. I remember that And (laughs) I really felt committed to experiencing what it was like to not have the privilege of leaving when it gets scary. And I think that it did really help me stretch and grow. And of course, like I had a lot of emotional breakdowns of like missing family and being scared that, you know, like, okay, what if someone in my family dies because of COVID and I've chosen to not go back and spend time with family? Like a lot of people were kind of like retracting to the nuclear unit to kind of like, you know, if this is your last chance to spend time with one another, Mm. isn't that what you want to do? And so me choosing to not do that was really hard because it is really important to me. My family is really important to me. But I also equally felt committed to No, you know what? There's like a lot of challenges around the world that like only very few people actually get to do that kind of a thing. Only very few people get to like prioritize their family and not something else. And so it felt like a, it felt like a necessary practice for me to go through. Probably three years prior to COVID starting. So maybe five years ago that I'd finally said, okay, I'm never going to spend more than six months away from home because like I need to be there. My nephew and niece are young. Like I need to be there. And then of course I'm like met with this like life challenge of like COVID where I'm going to spend, you know, 20 months away from home. Yeah. The things that you learn about yourself, the things that like you really do, you really can break down ego and privilege and some of the things that like we know we don't want to be egotistic. I know I don't want to have like expectations or, you know, I don't want to have privilege. I want to like dismantle those things. But at the same time, those things are built into some of to us in certain ways that without like really facing them and really saying, no, I could do this. I could take advantage of this, but I'm not going to because I need to stretch in this way. Or I feel that there's a reason I'm not going to like whatever it is, you know, 
And yeah, COVID was one of those times because it was really hard. We went from having like a full international team to support our programs to having like very few people on the ground, went from mostly international community working together to totally Nepali community working together. I have learned so much in that process. Your Nepali exploded. My Nepali exploded. My connection to the community, you know, changed in a lot of ways. My connection to the work changed in a lot of ways. Mm. I think I was really able to start prioritizing like what Nepali leaders would do for our organization Mm -hmm. rather than what me and other leaders would do for the organization, which I think was really valuable and necessary. Like we'd always talked about like being out of the way to actually get out of the way and to see what would happen and to support the process of it happening. Yeah. And in terms of like cultural barriers, you know, there's a lot. Yeah. I know it's a loaded question. It is. And, but, but it's valuable because I think it's also, it's why like you stay in a place. It's like, I never imagined I would spend seven years in a place, but seven years has, it's taken me to understand the background of those cultural challenges to understand that, oh, well, even if I don't like this power dynamic that exists when we work with communities, I don't really get to choose it. It's their power dynamic. It's their culture. Like, as much as I don't like it, doesn't mean anything, you know? I'm just this white lady. Like, I don't get to have a say. I can do my best to support programs that, you know, bring up marginalized voices or bring up women's voices, but that, like, the frustrating fact that every time we go to work in a secondary school, like, all of the leadership is male, like, I don't really get to have a say in that. No. And that's okay. Because all I get to have a say in is, like, how I use my life minutes to support other people to have a say in that, whose space it is, whether that's a female teacher or a young woman professional who's going to make their way, like, it's their space. And so you're making it more their space mm-hmm. by being there and contributing to the youth empowerment programs that we have, contributing to adding to the curriculum that wouldn't exist in education programs mm-hmm. in Nepali schools, right? Yeah, yeah, we made it very clear with the team that we had in the past and present with Bashal and Allison in the past to be like, well, this doesn't exist. We feel strongly that it can benefit the girls and the young women yeah. to have more knowledge about their own bodies, for example. Yeah. And that hopefully through the knowledge of their own bodies, they would make better decisions in their personal lives and their professional lives and education to, for example, perhaps not have a baby too young. Mm-hmm. So much so that it prevents them from pursuing a path in their life because that choice may be taken away once they become a mother too early on. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think the other thing about cultural barriers is that like sometimes the cultural barriers can be really beautiful. It can be like where you find humor or where you find connection can be some of those spaces of differences. And other times it can be frustrating and challenging. And there's been times where, you know, like I feel really upset with the reality that Mm. we're facing in our work. Yeah. And I think like that upsetness is is important, but I think it's more important to notice changes aren't overnight. And that upsetness usually comes from a place of impatience, probably. Ultimately, I just want this thing to happen and change faster than it is. But that really it takes time. Like you have to really be patient to see the ways that subconsciously people change first Mm. and then how their daily actions can change. Yeah. It takes time. 
but that we're on a track. I do believe that when I talk to community members about what, you know, when I talk to like a woman like Parvati Didi about what her childhood was like Mm -hmm. and what the women, the adult women, when she was a child experienced Mm -hmm. and what she as an adult woman experiences, Mm -hmm. I know there's positive change. Yeah. And I think you just have to trust that the ways in which change happen take time. Yeah, the way we implement the programs and do the work that we do is fundamentally a psychological change, a shift in perspective, a push against certain cultural norms that's been in existence for a long time. (laughs) And to think that us coming in with like fresh minds and higher education degrees and this like eagerness to change, to think that that alone is enough to push against that and change the tides within weeks and months and even a couple of years is foolish. Yeah. Right. I think some of that we've had to kind of experience firsthand to realize, oh yeah, like that probably is our ego being impatient and wanting like tangible mm-hmm. results. But as you just said it, you, you're saying it with a smile to the challenges that have existed, to the lessons of patience that yeah. we've gained. I think it's really beautiful. And to like, yeah, I think to document those moments too is really important. When you feel that pain or joy, that those are valid human experiences. And that's what makes life really beautiful. It's not that life is always going to look in some way or it's not going to be this idealist future we all think of like where we're sharing and caring and everybody works together Mm -hmm. it's that there is moments of joy and moments of difficulty moments of happiness and moments of sadness and that you can't really isolate either side both are necessary and both are like sacred to the human experience more than valid it's sacred yeah oh that's good well, there's a lot of butterflies yeah, there around are. us. Little butterflies everywhere. Came, one came really close to us. <laughs> it was really pretty. It was like kind fre- of freckled. Like, did you see that it matched my outfit? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of like a black and a yeah, gray. Yeah. It was going like, "Whoa, you look just like me." We've been making insect houses lately. Yeah. And each person who's working in my group to make insect houses for the agroforestry system here at the Regeneration Field Institute, we've been going around in a circle and ask, "What kind of insect would you be if you would be an insect?" <sighs> Uh-huh. Jonathan, what kind of insects would you be? It's fair to say that most of our human knowledge of insects is pretty limited. You know, we only know yeah. like the mainstreamers, I feel like. Right, right, right. Yeah, Camila and I were looking at a really obscure insect that exists in the south of the U.S., mm-hmm. maybe North America, mm-hmm. and it only lives as an adult for one week. Wow. It lives for most of its life in the juvenile infant stage for like two years, but it only gets to be an adult for a week. Wow. And it evolves. It's like it trenches into a different Pokemon completely. <laughs> so, now, again, so I'm not going to choose that insect, but, you know, just like what you said, like, it just took us a, a Wikipedia hunt to uh-huh. go like, whoa. There's so many out there. one of tens of millions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So insect. Gosh. You know, I'm partial to bees. Mm-hmm. I've been really enjoying seeing the native honeybees here mm-hmm. because they're really small mm-hmm. and they're really docile. Mm-hmm. But they don't have stingers. You know why? They're not actually honeybees. They're called solitary bees. Solitary bees. And they're actually native. Every place on the planet has them. But they don't have stingers and they don't produce honey. They actually just pollinate. And they create like solo nests. They don't live in hives like we think of the honeybees. Yeah. 
That may be one of my new favorites then. It's very cool. That's yeah. also what I said. I would also be a solid Hey, so, There you go. <laughs> well, I learned from, um, I forget who it was, those bees help pollinate flowers that are really small because mm -hmm. they're much smaller, smaller than mm -hmm. the introduced European and African honeybees. Mm -hmm. And so they can actually reach, like for example, some of these species of banana and plantains have flowers that are just way too small for the introduced right. bees to pollinate. And so it's the, the native tiny bees to to do that. And I found mm -hmm. it just fascinating. It's really interesting. Yeah, and the orchids that I've seen in the forest mm. when I was in uh, Mindo, in the rainforest, I was like, yeah, that's the job of the small honeybees. Tiny little bee. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that might be my current favorite. Mm. Uh -huh. That's a really good one. Yeah, thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool project. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, it is really cool. How do you create ecosystem balance on every level of your, from your soil to your fruit that you're producing? And in this case, we're expediting that regenerative process that actually is built into nature. Right. Because it wants to regenerate itself. Right. But hoping that with the knowledge us humans have gained and can distribute to others, that we can make that process even faster. Because we're impatient, as the theme goes. <laughs> Exactly. We want to do it within our lifetimes. So funny. Time is such a funny concept. Yeah. When we have finite amounts of it, hopefully we take advantage of what we do have and do the missions and work and devotions that cater towards their completion, see through it. Absolutely. So with that said, I think that's also a cool, relatable segue to what's next. What is in next? your life and in mm. Conscious Impact Nepal's journey, yeah. you, we've just announced that season eight is open. Open. And so our first year since before the pandemic That's right. in welcoming international Groups helpers of, mm -hmm, uh -huh, mm -hmm. to come and do these 10-day immersive programs mm -hmm. and, of course, the availability to do longer-term stays. Mm -hmm with certain people that are interested. Yeah. What's that looking yeah. like? What are some maybe like programs, initiatives mm -hmm. uh, you want to highlight for us? Yeah. So the, yeah, we're really excited to have our 10 day offerings back. Our entire team has been missing that element. The volunteer participant service learning aspect of our organization has been quite the soul of it um, in a lot of ways. Everyone from community leaders to staff ask all the time, when when are people coming again? When are they coming? And we've had extraordinary volunteers over the last two years that have come in one or two at a time and really mm -hmm. stayed for a long time and been like really stable found foundation for us to continue our work. In addition to our monthly donors, our sustainer team, like yourself, that have supported the funding because our organization before the pandemic was you know, 90% funded from volunteer participants. And so as soon as COVID cut those out, we were like in dire need to find funding in order to continue our work. Like when you plant a coffee tree, you can't just stop and wait five years. You can't just take two years off of education programs when you're studying what extracurricular programs can do for young people in rural areas. You have to continue it. And so uh, we were kind of at this pivotal point and it really... It was really challenging. Our local staff took salary cuts. Every, it was all hands on deck in terms of making it work the last two years. And it was in largely support of from our monthly donors keeping our work alive and then some larger donors and friends that we've had support us. Shout out uh, to all of you, mm -hmm. my Patreon supporters, 
all the sustainer team. Yes. Folks like Chase and Anna, mm -hmm. Karen, who came through. Absolutely. Sarah. Uh, when, yeah, so, I mean, several others. Yeah. That maybe we're going to. The MyQuest teams from Greece exactly. coming in in March and yeah. being our first kind of pilot volunteer programs after two years of no programs and Drew Marshall for being a big donor, yes. Kian Hood. There's a lot of good people out there that have really supported us to make yeah. this possible the last two years to continue our work yeah. and to be able to get to this point to say, hey, we're still in this position with the community where we can offer these really amazing 10-day mm -hmm. immersive programs where you get to experience intimate uh, relationships in rural Nepal, as well as participating in really amazing community development, sustainable development work. And that is planting trees, working with farmers on agricultural projects that support, you know, more agroforestry efforts. So a lot of times we look at what are the inhibitors for farmers to plant coffee successfully or plant fruit trees successfully. And a lot of times it's just, it's new. And so people don't know what to do. They don't know, you know, with corn, they've been doing it for centuries or rice for centuries. And so it's like those systems exist because of that knowledge that has evolved over time. But for trees, if you've never done it before, do you just plant it? And then you just like kind of watch it week to week? What do you have to do? And so we've been really working hand in hand with farmers to make compost in their field so they don't have to carry compost from their house to the field. Yeah build fences to protect their fields from things like goats because everybody walks their goats and then goats love baby trees, leaves. The, the um, perfect height. Perfect height. <laughs> um, things like creating rainwater harvesting ponds so yep. that during the dry season you have mm. irrigation available as well as doing projects like mushroom farming yep. to where meanwhile you are trying to wait for five years for something to fruit. You still need income now yes. and today. Yes. What kinds of activities can you do more rapidly? Things like herb farming, we've done some lemongrass distributions and sold to a, a soap maker outside of Kathmandu, um, as well as getting mushrooms. We had about 33 women trained in mushroom farming in collaboration with the Women's Cooperative last oh, year. So and good. like 15 of those 33 sold mushrooms in the local market. There's a really good rate of like, most of them grew mushrooms at home and ate it themselves, but half we're able to sell in the local market for yeah. income. So that is awesome. The baseline is you create a nutrition source for yourself right. at a really right. low cost. Right. And then the, you said about half of them were able to sell for extra income. Exactly. Which is always welcome in, yeah. in that setting. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We've developed, um, we also have like our craft program and mm -hmm. we're constantly looking for partners to develop new types of um, products from local materials, whether mm -hmm. it's like mats or tableware from woven corn husks. Um, so we, every volunteer group gets to do a workshop with local weavers and learn mm. about that technique and, and tradition. And then we're always looking for ways to get those products abroad, but also for sale in Kathmandu. Yeah, that's something that we talked about some some seasons ago, years right. ago. Yeah. And it really came alive because of COVID. Because right. It, we couldn't do a lot of our other types of work. And so yeah. some of our staff members were able to really think about that and work with local women. People oh. were needing jobs. There were a lot more people in rural areas during COVID because the cities were locked down. Yes. So no jobs. Yes. So everybody kind of came back and it was like people wanted to plant coffee. They wanted to plant fruit trees and yeah. they were looking for ways to 
make a livelihood in rural areas. Yeah. And so it's a forced shift. It, it was, was a good shift. It was, yeah, a in a lot of ways. Shift for sure. Yeah, we saw a lot of really amazing things come out of it. We also will have a couple of years ago we started a bus stop project and yes. we are still working on roofing it with treated bamboo. So we've been working on developing connections in Nepal for bamboo construction and we'll be building that. We'll be having a couple of courses, natural building courses are back because our our in-house engineer, Mariana Jimenez, who the whoop, listeners whoop. have already heard from, um, she'll be making it back to Nepal this year and leading a Super Adobe Dome construction workshop again, That's right. as well as an introduction to natural building. Uh, yes. Um, so we've got <laughs> that coming back, as well as we still support the local enterprise for bricks. And so helping, we still help them move bricks occasionally or help them with their production whenever they need it. And uh, this last year, they made 8,000 bricks for Janaki Tapa Foundation again. Mm -hmm. She's mm -hmm. been one of our biggest supporters of Wonderful. the bricks and her nonprofit is constantly building projects in Badigaon, a neighboring district. We also have our youth programs. One of the biggest projects that has kind of emerged in the last few years is the painting school program. Yes. It's become really popular. We have like a wait list of 12 schools waiting to get painted and we've Amazing. already done probably 12. So <laughs> we're constantly working on sending groups to different remote school sites yeah. and helping them paint the insides of their classrooms because it's some, it's a, luxury that they don't get to have they don't get to have budgets for that kind of a thing of like educate yeah. visual education materials and so it livens up the classroom it gives us a connection with a rural school to kind of understand their other challenges that exist yeah. and how our resources can help them further mm -hmm. but mostly provides visual learning aids for yeah. uh, young young students and then we have our after school program that happens throughout the week at Takare Primary School. And that program is really cool. We've been doing that for now two years, really consistently, twice a week, three times a week, after school sessions. We mm -hmm. cover all kinds of topics from arts and science and anything that the school really asked for. Like last year, we made a 3D model of the village. And Whoa. so it was like hands-on. They're, you know, using their hands and painting and like building their village. And it was all about maps. And we showed Google Earth, you know, recording so that they could see Mount Everest from Google Earth and see Kathmandu from Google Earth. And um, so it's a really, really cool like project. And uh, we've just got a request from another school, primary school, that wants to implement their own after-school program. Yeah. So our team is like developing a kit to kind of pass over to them with ongoing training so that they can run their own after-school program curriculum. And it'll copy like what we've been doing at Talkery for the last two years and what we'll continue doing. So that's really cool. And we have workshops at the secondary school still, girls program, as well as ongoing workshops in lots of different areas. We did a robotics workshop this last spring, which was really awesome. They made with batteries and motors and light bulbs, they were able to make robots. And it was mm. so cool to see that. That's so, a first. Yeah. So it's just in a lot of different developments in all areas. And so as a volunteer, you get to, you get to really experience uh, like a diverse array of activities of our programs. And wow. it really contributes to long-term work that our team continues to do throughout the year. So as a volunteer, you can really feel like you're doing something meaningful because there's people who stay beyond that. To keep I'm ready to sign up, Beth. <laughs> you you can. Will you take me back? <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> I know I asked for highlights and I know because I've spent so much time there in the past that all that is true and there's more. 
Yeah, right. Absolutely. You, there's community you know, dinner. There's <laughs> hikes in the mountains. I could go on. There's homestay experiences. There's the you know. Yeah, and it you can do your morning practice. There's exactly. craftoons mm-hmm. and like ways to just live in community, as we talked about mm-hmm. half an hour ago, mm-hmm. and all the individual as well as collective experiences one could have when you're there. It is choose your own adventure. Yes, we're still going to draw that little. Adventure chicken、Absolutely. on our check-in board. Definitely. Yeah, you make it. You make it what you want to make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in your case, Beth, you've made it into not just your work. So much more than work. It's a it's a form of devotion. It's been a source of tremendous joy. It's been your gateway into a whole different world and more worlds beyond that because people from all over the the globe have come. To Hakure in our community, and certainly our friendship is one of the many embodiments of this fact. Definitely, the thought of a year ago, we were in Mexico together in the Central Pacific Coast together, celebrating the marriage of our dear friends、mm-hmm. Ryan and Mariana, who are the first two <laughs> interviewees of the podcast.、Right. And now to you, it just feels such a, a natural progression. To kick off this new project of mine,、Thank、so、yeah, I'm so thankful that you've let me hear through a somewhat casual phone catch-up conversation <laughs> back in I think December last year,、mm-hmm. January this year. To be like, hey, I'm looking for a coordinator for some volunteer programs, <laughs> and I go, huh, funny. I'm already in southern Mexico,、mm-hmm. kind of close, relatively speaking. Maybe I'll consider hopping down. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's been awesome to connect、yeah. with you on this side of the world and with another project. And I think, yeah, a beautiful testament to our friendship and the experiences we've shared. So I'm super grateful that you have had me and that you've joined me here, or really, I joined you in physical <laughs> sense. Both, both,、um, both. For Regeneration Field Institute's work as well, it's meaningful. And great to see you in a different element, less with a camera in your hands, more with a shovel. You're powerful, Jonathan. Machete, shovel. Yeah, machete. Yeah. And now microphone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I love to wrap up this wonderful conversation with maybe some people and moments of inspiration you've had in the past that have uplifted you, that have had these、uh, kind of transformational moments. Who have like guided you and be good mentors to you? Maybe just share who they are and what moments they came into great support for you. I would probably need like four hours to really cover <laughs> all the people who a, have really posi- positively <laughs> impacted me. But a short list to say that my parents are really, really have really impacted and inspired me to live. This path and that continue to support me endlessly to this day, and、mm. have shown me from day one the unconditional love that should exist everywhere we look in the world, but also the generosity and selflessness that they have in their own community and the community that I grew up in.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that I've been really lucky. I've been a really lucky recipient of a lot of selfless love. And whether that was teachers in school, or I grew up in a really small community, so it was also like neighbors and the whole essence of it takes a village. Like I very much felt that as a kid,、mm. and that you know, as a young adult, I thought I didn't want anything close to that. And yet here I see in my life in so many ways I've just recreated that. And so 
I would say, yeah, they're huge, big parts of my life. And I also would say that my partner and Jesh, he has also been a really impactful inspiration as this last two years of kind of growing with conscious impact and going through the trials and troubles of COVID. And he's really, really, really smart, but also he has this very non-egotistical way of thinking about development work. Mm. And sometimes it's really inspiring to see how, how much he doesn't expect from any of the work that we're doing and uh, he doesn't try to become attached to it or unbiased. I'm much more like analytical sometimes. Like sometimes I just like want things to get done and, you know, things to happen like really black and white. It doesn't have to be so complicated, but he's really appreciative and really enhances the process that it can be complicated and it can be progressing. And even if it feels like you're taking steps backward, those are actually steps forward. And he's always been, he's been teaching me that for almost two years of working together. And yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful to have that kind of support in my life mm. and love in my life. Mm. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Beth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. This feels very wholesome. Uh, yeah, it's such an honor to be on this. And yeah, I'm excited to continue to listen in and discover the wilderness within with you and all of your other, you know, people you'll be talking with. Can't wait. I think a lot of it will come later this year. And certainly it's just a start. It's nonlinear. I have to be patient myself. That's right. The quality and synchronicity of us being able to link up rather than like this needs to be done at a certain pace, right? Like crank out mm. two per month as a lot of businesses and like maybe entrepreneurs are told to be like consistent in that sense. But mm. this being a passion love project and this being powered by nobody but only my own devotion and curiosity and my love for these wonderful friends I've had in my life and by patron supporters, like no one's agenda, but really ours to be like, well, this is the coincidence and opportunity that we have to at least get a little snippet as to what goes on in the inner workings of what makes a person who she, he, mm. they are, and why do we devote ourselves to what we do? And how do we overcome consistently difficult challenges and still come out the other side feeling like, yeah, I'm rejuvenated. I'm gonna keep chipping at this. And that these big problems in the world we're all aware of and hopefully working together to collectively solve and improve. Definitely. Yeah. I look forward to it. Beth Huggins, everybody. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for loving me, being my friend. have it a conversation with beth huggins i think we could have talked quite a bit longer but allowed us to be perhaps a part one of more conversations to come i'd love to dive into once again the complexities and perspectives of what development work could look like and would look like especially with all the nuances and layers depending on where it is what year it is all the 
cultural understandings and societal conditions and unique stories that each individual and family and region and village could hold. And the approach is to not come thinking that you know it all, or we have some sort of silver bullet that can be applied across the spectrum to any particular problem of sanitation or water or education, but to really go in there with an open mind and open heart and not have expectations as to what the outcome is, but to, as Beth said, how do you get out of the way to really get out of the way, but be supportive of the processes that allow the local people in conjunction with established studies and knowing and systems so that it's not just a band-aid solution to any one particular problem, but to look at everything as a system holistically and to apply something that has more longevity, that has more bearing in mind sustainability, and to really empower folks to start something and to perpetuate it in service of themselves and their own community. Yeah, we don't really want to fall into the trap that a lot of international development organizations and NGOs have done, which is creating a dependency or a way in which it's just practicing some form of neocolonialism even. And so I find it really important to have this kind of discord where we examine ourselves and actually be really critical of what the underlying motives are and how do we continue to be support, but not coming with some sort of hidden agenda. So I'm really grateful for Beth in opening up and sharing so much of what she's learned and all the nuances and complexities of this type of work. And I really hope you've come away having some more insights, maybe even more questions and thinking critically about what development work could look like and would look like when done in a way that really serves both parties or multiple parties. And I'm really grateful to be able to geek out a little bit and chat about this type of work because it has been a big theme in my life in well over a decade since I graduated from university. And this is a space that I hope to continue to dabble in from here and there because really it's about the human condition and understanding that we can't really approach any one particular problem with this one-size-fits-all solution, but really it, one must look at it systematically and holistically. I hope that this is a part one of maybe several parts <laughs> of my conversation with Beth. And who knows where future conversations could be. It could be in Ecuador again. It could be in Nepal. It could be back in the States or some other place in the world. We'll see. If you have any questions for Beth or myself directly, please drop a line. I will put in the show notes how you can connect with Beth directly. And as always, I appreciate your time and attention in tuning into this episode of Wilderness Within. Until next time. I think in the last few years alone, I've really come around and realized, my goodness, even the smaller projects like this require a whole team. They really require and really benefit from a whole community around it. And so I'm here to proudly acknowledge the humans through the years since the launch of my Patreon in 2018 who have been contributing and or contributed in the past at levels at which I just need to say their names and acknowledge the, all that they've done, the time they've given to give me comments and dropping messages, giving me advice, 
and of course, dropping in their hard-earned dollars or whatever currency they're earning in to support me in all the projects that I've devoted my time to, including the Wilderness Within podcast. So here we go. I want to give a special thank you to Paul Jones, Antoine Mays, Ayana Ballin, Deborah Carson, Renee Dyke, Luke Fernandez, Kelly P, Karina Fourmile, Kelsey Lynn, Ken Russell, Kelsey Yates, Michael Chung, Evans DeGoles, Reiki Corden, Christine Schumann, Lindsay Clavery, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name and anyone's, Ann Goodman, Yushin Tuan, Otis Skipper, Steve Tracy, Delvin Sokinson, Stephen Moe, Steph Bird Parker, Anna Ritz, Camila Newlands, Dana Wilson, Nara De Garcia, Dora Lee, Orion Haas, Michelle Kisner, Stephen Wong, Gutier Baga, Jackie Chow Solinsky, Romar Smith, Peter Wells, Jackie Chern, Setop Sukpo, Frankie Lee, Jim Barngrover, Lisa Colligan, Merrick Bowers, Ryan Liu, and last but not least, Mikey Learn. Thank you so much, y'all. Really means a lot for your support. Past, present, future. You make my dreams come true. You allow me to work where I travel to. You allow me to create content where I'm passing through. You allow me to trust that each month I'm going to have this nice little baseline of income that really sustains me, that sometimes really puts food on a table and allows me to go, hey, like I can commit to this project. I'm going to buy that piece of gear. I'm going to hire that person. I'm going to invest in myself and the services and goods that allow me to create and expand and try new things and experiment. And all of this is a part of it. So thank you. I am so grateful.